This podcast is brought to you by Villanova University on iTunes U. Please visit us on itunes.villanova.edu. Thank you, Danielle, very much for that introduction. And thank you so much for the invitation to speak with you here this evening. It is a real pleasure to be here. The moral test of government is how it treats those who are in the dawn of life, the children, those who are in the twilight of life, the aged, and those in the shadows of life, the sick, the needy, and the handicapped. Former Vice President and Senator Hubert Humphrey said those words in 1977. I have hung that quote framed in every office I have had. Today, we would not use the word handicapped. And indeed, I try very hard to refrain from referring to anyone by their age or their illness or their disability or frankly, any other singular characteristic. But for me, this quote captures why I chose to work in the public and nonprofit sector. I wanted to be part of a government that strives to meet this moral test. And I wanted to be an advocate who holds my government accountable when it fails to do so. My first opportunity to do both came at a very young age. As Danielle mentioned, I became the staff director of the Senate Appropriations Subcommittee with jurisdiction over funding for the Departments of Labor, Health and Human Services, and Education. Pretty heady stuff for a 27-year-old. That was in 1986, when public health experts and many wonderful people inside the NIH and the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention were sounding the alarm about HIV and AIDS. But at the time, remember, this was 1986, before we had any drug therapies or HIV cocktails or the Ryan White Care programs, 1986. At the time, the president and others in the White House refused to acknowledge or respond to the crisis. It took the extraordinary leadership of a few people on Capitol Hill, including my former boss, Senator Weicker from Connecticut, along with some extraordinary activists to get our government to eventually respond to the HIV epidemic and appropriate dollars to the NIH, CDC, FDA, and others. It was a privilege and an honor to be a part of making that happen, although it should have happened much, much sooner. Later, I became the executive director of the National Commission on AIDS. One of the commissioners, Belinda Mason, a woman who was living with AIDS and has since died, said at a congressional hearing, you know, Mr. Chairman, America is a great place unless you're sick or different. I distinctly remember thinking at the time, America should be a great place, especially when you're sick or different. And once again, I knew I wanted to be part of a government that would make that happen, or an advocate who holds my government accountable when it fails to do so. In 1997, I became the director of the Health and Human Services Program at the Pew Charitable Trust. In fact, that position brought me here to Philadelphia. Up to that point, I had spent most of my career in Washington, D.C., working for the federal government. 
When I went to Pew, I had the opportunity to think about using policy as a lever for change from the perspective and vantage point of philanthropy, using foundation dollars to inform and shape policy, policies that would address many of the same compelling health and human services issues I had looked at from the federal government's perspective. At Pew, I could look at them from the perspective of another sector of our society. One of the initiatives I'm most proud of from that time is an initiative that was designed to address the fact that there are way too many young people stuck in foster care. Thank goodness we have a child welfare system with the mandate and responsibility to remove children from situations where their safety, in many cases their very lives, uh, are at risk. We must protect those children. But we also know that it is terrible for a child's health and development to be placed in two, three, four, five, ten, twenty sometimes more different families and settings. That instability is not good for any child. And when they get to be a certain age, many, many of them are just stuck in the child welfare system. And I use the word stuck deliberately. When we first started working in this area, people used to say, children were languishing in foster care. And I remember thinking, they're not languishing in foster care. They're stuck in foster care. I implore you, when you speak and when you write, please use simple, direct terms so that the importance of what you are saying and the challenges that you are describing have impact, have a voice and a face, and are conveyed with the urgency that so much of what we do demands and deserves. Some of my colleagues at Pew used to tell new staff members, if Maureen tells you a word is elegant, she means take it out. <laughs> I happen to have a soft spot in my heart for adolescents. They can often be the most forgotten and yet the most in need of our attention. I remember well when the National Commission on AIDS held a hearing in Chicago on AIDS to focus on the issues and the ch uh, challenges associated with HIV in adolescents. We heard from adolescent health professionals, community members, and of course, young people themselves. And I remember this one young man who was probably about 15. He just looked at all of us at one point and said, you know, you can't have same, safe sex in the, you can't have safe sex in the Cabrini housing projects. They're not a safe place. Some of you may have heard of the Cabrini housing projects, a notoriously dangerous, high crime filled set of high rise housing units in Chicago that have since been torn down, thank goodness. That young man was so much more afraid of being shot or lured into a gang than he ever was of becoming infected with the AIDS virus. As simple as it sounds, I remember realizing that day that condoms and pamphlets and HIV education were not ever going to be enough. For many young people, I was going to need to help make their world a safer place where they could believe in and imagine a future beyond the age of 17 or 18. When we launched the, our foster care initiative at Pew, we focused on young people. Specifically, we focused on the federal financing mechanisms that in our view and the view of many experts were actually keeping children in foster care. It was a clear case of money driving outcomes. If most of the incentives and expenditures go towards supporting the status quo, 
And very little goes to addressing the obstacles to reunification or adoption, then that's what you'll get, the status quo, more of the same. So we worked with some wonderful people around the country to propose ways in which some of the federal dollars could be made available to help move children safely, and I underscore safely, out of the system. Eventually, many of these proposals were included in legislation and got signed into law. It was an honor and a privilege to be part of helping to make that happen so that maybe, just maybe, we made the world a better place for some of those young people. I left Pew to become the executive director of a human rights organization called Human Rights First. Human Rights First focuses on refugee protection needs and programs, an especially important area of work these days. It also works with human rights defenders around the world to support them in their efforts to speak truth to power, often at great risk to themselves and their families. In 2007, I had the privilege of traveling to Pakistan to stand in solidarity with lawyers who were protesting in the streets over the actions President Musharraf had taken to unilaterally remove judges from Pakistan's Supreme Court and to place many lawyers under arrest. I met with one Supreme Court justice who was under house arrest. When we arrived at his home, he opened the door with a book in his hand that he had been reading before we arrived. It was a biography of Thurgood Marshall. I remember welling up with tears over the fact that he would be reading about one of our justices, the first African-American Supreme Court justice, at a time when the future of his country, his court, and his democracy was so threatened. I also remember clearly why I was motivated to accept the position at Human Rights First in the first place. I went in 2005 when the United States government was allowing the use of torture as an interrogation technique at Babu Ghraib and elsewhere. Human Rights First strongly opposes such actions because they violate the Geneva Conventions, go against what is defined as permissible in the Army Field Manual, do not reflect American values, and besides all that, don't work. And you don't have to take my word for it. There's a group of more than 50 high-ranking retired generals and admirals who have repeatedly and publicly argued against the use of torture. I have met these men, and yes, they are mostly men, and they are some of the most extraordinary leaders I have had the pleasure of meeting. They are clear, they are direct, and they're unequivocating. In 2014, two of them wrote, torture is illegal, it's immoral, and it's counterproductive. There is no room for legal or moral ambiguity in torture. I went to human rights first because I wanted to be an advocate who holds the government accountable when it fails to live up to Vice President Humphrey's moral test of government, not to mention in this case, the rule of law. At Human Rights First, I could be part of holding my government accountable, and as painful as that was, it sure felt like right where I wanted to be. I often said that about my work in the early days of the AIDS crisis. The unwillingness of our government to respond to an epidemic because of fundamental bigotry and homophobia was extremely painful. But to be part of the efforts to hold the government accountable to do its job was very meaningful work. We lost a lot of votes back then, but at least my boss was fighting and I could fight with him. Oops, hold on one sec, I'm gonna go. 
Um, and I could fight with him. I have another framed wall hanging in my office that says, if I remain silent, who will speak? With your MPA from Villanova and all the other degrees and experiences that have led you to this point in your life, you have the ability and I believe the responsibility to speak up. Some of you will have the opportunity to do this in highly visible public places like Washington, D.C., state capitals, city halls, on television, in social media. And thank goodness, because goodness knows we need the best and the brightest running for office and serving in the highest levels of government. But many of you, many of you, will serve in positions and jobs that are not highly visible, but can change the lives of many people. You will be the ones who will bring the data and analysis and the evidence of what works and what does not work to the decision-making process. You will be the ones who can frame the data and analysis in ways that can help key decision-makers get it and adopt it. You will be the ones who can set a tone and culture of respect and inclusion. And you will be the ones who will know how important it is to include the community and the community voice when making decisions. If there's one thing I've learned over the years, it's this. We may be the ones with the degrees and the credentials, but trust me, we are not always the experts. We will not figure out relevant, useful, effective solutions. Can't touch the thing. <laughs> we will not figure out relevant, useful, effective solutions if the very people on whose behalf we are working are not part of that solution. I once heard someone describe a friendship he had with a person with intellectual disabilities the following way. I don't take that person on an appointment. He doesn't come with me. We go together. I think we'd all be a lot better off if we thought more often about going together, working together, solving problems together. And speaking of together, I hope that many of you will serve as connectors of different fields and sectors in society. I've spent much of my career focusing on public health issues and challenges. I have always liked public health because it's a field of problem solvers. In public health, we never assume the answer to a health problem is always a medical one. The problem could be in the food, in the air, in the water, in the mosquito, in someone's home or community. We believe in community health and we believe in focusing on prevention and the social determinants of health. And once you begin to focus on the social determinants of health, you begin to realize how important it is to work across sectors, to work with people in education, environment, housing, and many others. I encourage you to avoid the tendency to stay siloed in your own department or field. The answers will frequently come from working across sectors and we need leaders like you to make that happen. Now, as many of you already know, life can be filled with ups and downs and unexpected twists and turns. It is not always easy. For sure, that's been true in my life. Some losses are big and they last forever. Like the unexpected death of my sister Sheila, in 1986, and my brother Robert's death in 2001 from a, a prolonged battle with brain cancer. As someone once told me, the best you can hope for in those circumstances is that it gets bearable. And I agree, that's pretty much as good as it gets. 
Some losses are big, and, but they seem big at the time, but over time, you come to accept them. Take this recent loss in my life, for example. <laughs> Did I mention my MPA is from Carolina? <laughs> we all have our wounds. We all have our disappointments. And we all won't get it exactly right every time. After all, we're human. But that's what makes us able to relate to the people on whose behalf we work. That's what gives us empathy. That's what keeps us connected and not removed and out of touch with the experience of others. It's a heart and head situation in the public and nonprofit sector. We need to use both. I often say that when I began my career, I did not know exactly what path I would take. But I did know I wanted to use my head on things that moved my heart. And I had no idea I would work on the HIV epidemic, and yet it changed my life. I never imagined I would work at a foundation, and yet I spent nine years at the Pew Charitable Trust, working on strategies to address some of society's most compelling challenges and problems. And I had no idea I would travel to Pakistan and Russia from all, um, I had no idea I would travel to Pakistan and Russia and meet human rights defenders from all around the world uh, who would inspire me and importantly, keep me humble. I had a Jesuit friend, did I mention I was educated by the Jesuits? <laughs> who used to say to me, just your small, humble part, Maureen, don't try to be the chairperson of the universe, just your own small, humble part. And finally, I never imagined I would become part of the Milken Institute School of Public Health at George Washington University, where I am today, teaching the next generation of public health professionals and working on a variety of policy issues, including issues that bring me here to Philadelphia once a week to work at this wonderful place called Policy Lab at CHOP. Whenever I have the opportunity like this to reflect on the incredible opportunities I've been given, I am filled with a deep sense of gratitude and a strong sense of so much still to be done around the world and here at home. So I'd like to close with a quote from one of my heroes, Eleanor Roosevelt. Writing about Mrs. Roosevelt, one columnist said, it was her sense of duty that sent Eleanor Roosevelt to the mining communities in pockets of depression poverty. It was her sense of righteousness that forced Eleanor Roosevelt to place her seat between the black and white aisles of a segregated Southern conference in 1939. It was her sense of justice that pushed a declaration of human rights through the contentious United Nations in 1948. And about universal human rights, Eleanor Roosevelt said, and I quote, where after all do universal human rights begin? In small places, close to home, so close and so small that they cannot be seen on any maps of the world. Yet, they are the world of the individual person, the neighborhood he lives in, the school or college he attends, the factory farm or office where he works, such are the places where every man, 
woman and child seeks equal justice, equal opportunity, equal dignity without discrimination. Unless these rights have meaning there, they have little meaning anywhere. Without concerted citizen action to uphold them close to home, we shall look in vain for progress in the larger world. So go forth, make your mark on the world, but always remember, without upholding fundamental human rights close to home, we shall look in vain for progress in the larger world. Thank you very much. The, you know, the clarity, I, when I got my MPA, I was clear that I wanted to be in the nonprofit sector. So I was grateful that some of the um, courses I took and the exercises we engaged in um, really helped me better understand some skill building. Um, I don't think I knew a lot about being a good manager or a good leader. Um, I really do think it's important to understand how to build and manage a budget so that there were some practical kinds of things that I think I learned that were quite helpful to me. But I also, when I think back on it, I, it a lot of it had to do with both the faculty but my classmates. They, everyone was interested in doing something different and I was grateful for the opportunity to learn what a city manager is. Um, or the kinds of things that people were interested in doing at state level government as well as the federal and national. So I think it's the diversity of job opportunities or professions that people choose to go into. And to some degree, I have an undergraduate degree in English literature and a minor in philosophy. I, it was helpful to have some of the real um, knowledge and skill building that I had at the MPA. It was also a fairly, um, I'll just say this quickly, I'm not sure I, uh, about how, well, how much you can do this at Villanova, but one of the things I liked about that program is I took courses, courses in the law school, in the School of Social Work, in the School of Education. It had a flexibility that allowed me to sort of think about other, even back then, other fields and other sectors. So I, I remember thinking that was helpful. <laughs> For our practices, I think I was at Princeton, and they said they always have the first question asked by students. So, can I put someone on the spot? Yeah, yeah, Emily. How do you feel like your nonprofit work, or actually, I guess for your case, your subsequent work in the area, you work in the nonprofit sector? Do you understand the constitutional issues that were so obvious that you were trying to engage in making the work profession it was really true in the early days of HIV. I mean, what we, what we needed and had in the early days of the HIV crisis were extraordinary public health professionals who understand how viruses are transmitted and could see that this was gonna be a pandemic. And I mean, th they made a really important, very, very valuable contribution. 
but healthcare nonprofit service organizations, community health centers, other places who were seeing the epidemic play out, understanding how in different communities it was becoming more and more of a, a crisis and a challenge. We, we learned from the folks in the nonprofit sector. When I was on Capitol Hill, the people who taught us what to advocate for in terms of the Appropriations Committee or what we might be doing for legislation, it all came from people on the outside. So again, scientists, public health experts helping us a lot with epidemiology and where this was going and how we needed to think about investments in the NIH and the CDC, but really appreciating what the demand for services were going to be and who the best deliverers would be in terms of folks who had trusted, uh, who they trusted and how we were going to be doing this. It came from people who were experiencing the epidemic in that very, in this, like I said, in the centers um, and in the nonprofit organizations. I, I always remind people back in the 80s, um, what we saw happening initially was a lot of young men losing their job, losing, losing their health insurance, and no mechanism to get health care services because Medicaid was for single mothers and their children. I mean, we've since gone forward and expanded eligibility for Medicaid and diversified what the requirements are, but you saw a lot of um, public clinics and nonprofit organizations stepping up and providing the kinds of prevention services as well as care services while the government caught up to the nonprofit sector. evidence that it works. The fact that there are people at places like Villanova and other colleges and universities and other kinds of places that are documenting that that, in fact, is the best way to get the outcomes you want, whether they're health outcomes or education outcomes or the other kinds of outcomes we might measure, um, and that, in fact, in some ways, they're the most cost-effective ways of doing things, since cost is going to be a big driver when we're trying to get decisions. I truly believe having, that's why I said, showing what works and what doesn't, having the evidence and framing it in the terminology, in the images, in the ways in which big key public policymakers can make those decisions, I think it's really, really important and it's increasingly effective. But having the evidence that that partnership, that collaboration is in fact how people get the best outcomes and, in fact, and at the same time can be the most cost effective way to go, I think that's what's driving it. make me cry. <laughs> um, yeah. It is a serious problem. We're seeing it play out right now, right? Ebola, spend a lot of money, oops, Zika, now we'll spend it on Zika, both of which are incredibly compelling and important and we need to do that, right? I think the more I, th I think the more we can find ways 
to convince, I think people need to better appreciate how public health works and why you need to have an infrastructure and a sort of foundation and they can't sort of do these things as one-offs. So there's an education process, there's an evidence process, there's a sort of um, priority setting process. Um, I do think you make it very difficult for people in the government who want to be helpful and maybe even do this foundational when you really have the, you know, make the kinds of budget cuts or hold some parts of the budget to such a, um, a tight situation and then sequestration comes in after that. So I think partly what happens in the budget debate and the way in which people are sort of having a very hard time figuring out how to make the most out of what they've got results in that. So I do think thinking about the larger financial picture, and I understand that's a national debate. We should have it, right? There's a big, people have differences of opinion about spending and, and um, taxes and cutting. I mean, that's what the process is about. But I do think that context sets the stage for what you see the government doing, which is to do the very thing you talk about, which is to really sort of respond quickly and then maybe be gone or not even take advantage of the lessons that we've learned or some of the programs that have been set up that could actually have some implications um, for some other things. So I think you have to give people the resources, but I also think we're still trying to make the case for what does the floor need to look like, and then how do you build on that when you have an outbreak in a city or a state or someplace around the world? I, I, I really resonate with that question. On behalf of Villanova and the Department of Public Administration, we want to thank you for your words of wisdom tonight. And as a token of our gratitude, we hope you'll wear it. It's a Villanova sweatshirt. <laughs> we don't mean it to be <laughs> anything that's going to, you know, take the scab off an old wound. But, <laughs> but we hope that it, you'll enjoy it. <laughs> well, thank you very much. I have to say, one of the things I love anytime I give a talk and if it's at a college, is to get a sweatshirt. So I have to say, <laughs> I, I really love the gift. And I honestly think, like I said, you know, I'm a grown up, I'm a big person. <laughs> I'll wear it, thank you very much. Thank you so much. <laughs>